A reading from Psalm 17. These are God's words. A prayer of David. Hear a righteous cause, O Yahweh. Give heed to my cry of lamentation. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. May my judgment come from your presence. May your eyes behold what is upright. You have tested my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tried me and you find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men, by the words of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My footsteps have not stumbled. I have called upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my speech. Marvelously show your loving kindness. O Saviour of those who take refuge at your right hand, from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who devastate me, my deadly enemies who surround me. They have closed their unfeeling hearts with their mouth. They speak proudly. They have surrounded us in our steps. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He is like a lion that is eager to tear, and as a young lion lurking in hiding places. Arise, O Yahweh, confront him, bring him low, protect my soul from the wicked with the sword, with your sword, I should say, from men with your hand, O Yahweh, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. May you fill the bellies of your treasured ones and satisfy their sons. So they leave their abundance to their children. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. These are God's words. You can take your seats. The title, the inspired title of this psalm is A Prayer of David. Eight other times we see that that phrase, A Prayer of David, somewhere in the title of a psalm. Many other psalms are prayer-like songs, but the title of this psalm indicates that it is specifically a prayer. Every time we come across a personal prayer of a righteous man that God heard and then decided to include in his word, we ought to consider them as prayers to imitate. Of all the prayers offered up by the church, these are the ones that God decided to include in his infallible word. Having this high prayer, place amongst all prayers, we ought to meditate on them and consider why they had such a stamp of approval from God. The prayers that we have in the Psalms are not only to be imitated, but we are to sing them word for word. They are to be sung as they were prayed. So we're going to do that later with the Psalm, but first let's meditate on the content of the Psalm and try to draw some principles for our own prayer life. If we are going to imitate this prayer well, we need to examine its parts. Where does David's mind go in prayer? And what principles can we learn from his approach to to God? We know this is a good prayer, so what is good about it? As I was preparing and asking these questions of the text, I saw one big principle that we can learn from the beginning of David's prayer. We're going to spend most of our time examining this principle and applying it. Before David makes any requests of God, he lets God know the position he is praying from. 
Of course, God knew everything about his position before he included it in his prayer. David is not teaching God anything in his preamble uh, to his requests. But David still believes that it is necessary to frame his requests in this particular way. So what is important about the position he is praying from that he mentions at first? There are two things he highlights. First, the righteousness of his cause. Before giving his request, he gives the nature of his cause. His cause is good and God would approve of it. Then secondly, he highlights the uprightness of his own life. He is praying not from a place of wickedness, but from uprightness. These two things, the righteousness of his cause and the righteousness of his life, they are woven together throughout these first five verses. So let's read them again and let's see this in the text. It starts with, Hear a righteous cause, O Yahweh, give heed to my cry of lamentation. So that's his righteous cause. He's putting that out front. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. So that's David's righteousness. May my judgment come from your presence. May your eyes behold what is upright. Again, that's his righteous cause. You have tested my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tried me and you find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. So again, that's David heriting his own righteousness. As for the deeds of men by the words of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My footsteps have not stumbled. Again, we see interwoven here David's righteousness and the righteousness of his cause. Now, why would David start his prayer this way? Why not just make his requests and spare the preamble? What does he achieve by highlighting his righteous position? And also, how could he be so bold to claim that he is righteous? How does claiming righteousness improve his prayer or incline God to listen to him? I believe David began his prayer this way because he understood something fundamental about God and prayer that few understand today. God does not hear some prayers. Some prayers are, in fact, an abomination to him. Proverbs 28.9 says, If one turns away from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. David knew that if the two things he established at the beginning were not true, God would not listen to his requests. We see this reality in many places in Scripture. And first, we're going to look at how prayer must have a righteous cause for God to listen to it. James 4.3 says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Some do not pray for a righteous cause. They ask wrongly because God does not approve of the end for which they ask. In this case, they're wanting to spend the answer of their prayers on their passions. In 1 John 5.14 it says, And this is the confidence that we have toward God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We should have no confidence if we ask for something that, he does, that does not accord with his will. Why would God work against himself and his desire for us to live in a righteous way? So David highlights that his prayer is in line with the will of God before he asks it. 
that gives him confidence to boldly lay out his requests. So where does scripture teach us that God does not listen to the prayers of the person who is in sin? Uh, One very clear passage is in John chapter 9, when the man who used to be blind defended Jesus before the Pharisees. He said this, We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, God listens to him. That's John 9, 31. He said these things because Jesus healed his eyes completely. And if God heard Jesus' prayers and powerfully answered them in this way, it follows that Jesus is in the will of God and that he is not a sinner. His proof included, God does not listen to sinners. Sin puts distance between the one praying and the holy God he tries to reach through prayer. Proverbs 15.29 says the same thing. It says it plainly. Yahweh is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Again, we see in Peter, uh, uh, Peter saying the same thing um, in chapter uh, chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. The one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it for, this is the reason, for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and he and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And there are many other places in scripture where this reality is taught. Psalm 66 verse 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Isaiah 59 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. There are other places we could have gone to as well. But the point I'm making here is that David knew the teaching of these verses well. His sin could cause his, regu- his request to be not heard. But since he was not in sin, his request should be heard because God desires to answer the saints' prayers. He was even so bold to say, you have tested my heart, you have visited me by night, you've tried me, you know that you've found no problem in me. Now it would be a fair question if you were thinking to yourself now, wasn't David the same person who wrote, no one is righteous, no not one? How can David say that in one psalm and then claim that he was righteous in this psalm? Now, the way I square this is that the concept of righteousness can be spoken of in multiple ways. I don't think we we should press this word righteousness to mean the same thing in every instance. There is a sense in which no one is judicially righteous before God. But there is also a sense in which someone can be living righteously and pleasing to God. This concept cannot be escaped because both forms of righteousness are all over Scripture. For example... The Bible often contrasts the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, especially throughout the the Proverbs. So here's one example. Proverbs 11.5. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked fall by his own wickedness. When it refers to the righteousness of the blameless here, it is not talking about or referring to 
uh, the imputed righteousness of Christ that he has. To insist on that would rob the text of its meaning. It is speaking of his way. His walk is truly righteous. Now, it is right to say that a man's righteous living is connected to his imputed righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ. But this imputed righteousness is different. It cannot be lost. But it is possible for the righteous man to fall into unrighteous living and have his prayers hindered while not losing the imputation of Christ's righteousness. This is an important distinction to make. With this being the case, I believe there were times that David could not have prayed this prayer in truth between David committing adultery with Bathsheba and Nathan confronting him about it. David had no reason to be confident that his prayer would be answered. Interestingly, in the account of, of this in 2 Samuel 12, where David sinned, we see these two distinct types of righteousness at play. We see that after David was confronted by Nathan, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And what did Nathan say in response? The Lord has taken away your sin. But David confessed, uh, because David confessed his sin, he was considered judicially righteous. He was forgiven. He was seen with the righteousness of Christ. But what did Nathan say to David next? But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. David then went home and pleaded with the Lord for his child's life. But because of his unrighteous living, God turned a deaf ear to his cries, and the child died after seven days. Seven days of David's prayers were ignored. Now this is where the teaching of this psalm is about to hammer us all. We can be earnestly on our knees. You can be fasting and spend your nights in sackcloth on the ground. But if you are cozying up to sin, God will ignore you and your prostrate position. He will turn a deaf ear to you. This should be terrifying to us all. What else could this do but provoke the fear of the Lord and us who believe in God this morning? The righteous position that David prayed from, that he laid out in the beginning of the psalm, that righteousness is not optional if you want your request to be answered. We ought to fear God and turn from our sin, lest we lose the favor of God over our prayer lives. A belief in God's word will cause us to repent before we pray. This teaching is not intended to be a discouragement to you this morning. Many pastors today would say that what I am saying is pastorally unwise. It could just drive you to despair this morning. But is this not found in scripture? Is this not just the plain teaching of the word? With these things being the case, I would actually propose the opposite to these men. That we should not be discouraged, but instead encouraged by these things. Yes, you might feel the need to repent of some things after today. You might even know exactly what sin is hindering your prayer this morning as you sit there. But I believe that knowing these things should not be a reason for discouragement. So how is that the case? Though David fell from righteousness and God did not hear his prayer for a time, he quickly got back up off the ground and was soon restored by God. Afterward, he had many prayers answered and heard by God. He was a man with a nature just like ours, and after a firm rebuke, he repented. 
so can all of us. He returned to the Lord, and God did mighty things through him once he did. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. After knowing that we have Christ's righteousness, we ought to keep from sin and hold a position that we can confidently pray from. Like it was with David, it may take time to be restored to that position. A guilty conscience can linger. It took more than seven days in his case. But you will eventually be restored to that favorable position of prayer. Wouldn't it be great if every time we went before our God and made our requests known to him, we could in good conscience begin as David did here. Answer me, God, in my righteousness. Let's not play about with God in prayer. Let's not allow sin to hinder our walk with him. Let's get serious about living in obedience to our kind and merciful God. As a church, what would this serious Christian living look like as we do it together? Because we're going to all stumble. James 5, 16 to 18. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now, we know that this passage is primarily talking about sickness, physical sickness, but you can make an argument from the greater to the lesser that we have all, all kinds of effects of sin in our life. So we ought to pray for one another, confess these sins. Now, listen to what James connects to this in the very next verse. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it, could, that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Be encouraged, because we have a like nature to Elijah, and God wants to display his power through answered prayer. We, should not, uh, we can and should confess our sin and make our request known with a clean conscience. This is God's will. For our lives. Now we're going to skip over a bunch of this psalm today. In the main body of the text, David presents some similar requests to other psalms that we've already read this year. But there is one beautiful little nugget uh, toward the end of the psalm that I want to bring to our attention before we finish. I first noticed it because the translations were wildly different between the versions. So let's read verses 13 to the end. And again, I want you to notice where the brackets are there in, in verse 14. Arise, O Yahweh, confront him. Confront, that is, David's enemies. Bring him low. Protect my soul from the wicked with your sword. From men, uh, from men with your hand, O Yahweh. From men of the world whose portion is in this life. May you fill the bellies of your treasured ones and satisfy their sons so they, uh, so they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Now the LSB, that's the Legacy Standard Bible, renders the last half of verse 14 like this. And whose bellies you fill with your treasure, they are satisfied with children and leave their excess to their infants. Now this sounds like the wicked are feeding on children, 
which is very different than God satisfying his treasured ones with food and offspring. Very different messages. While we do see the wicked selfishly feeding on their own children today, I think the second rendering is best. And if this is the case, there is a very profound insight in it. David here puts the two life aims of the wicked and the righteous side by side. And in doing so, he highlights the stark contrast between the two. It also makes for an interesting summary of what the wicked and the righteous live for. The wicked live for the here and now. It says their portion is in this life. Their aim is to fill their own bellies now. The righteous, though, they live for their children. They live for those who will carry on after them. They leave their abundance to their infants as an inheritance. How true is this contrast? How true is this in the world today? Why care about leaving behind anything if you're about to disappear into the dirt forever? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we take a dirt nap. You may as well use up your savings on yourself while you are still breathing. You earned every cent of that money. Why give it to someone else to use? I've heard supposed Christians spout this sentiment. But the righteous don't think this way. We have faith that the wealth we accumulate has lasting worth that will go on into eternity. The wealth we leave behind will serve the advancement of God's kingdom after we are gone. We don't want to use it all up on ourselves. It is our joy to preserve our wealth for others, knowing that those who will inherit it are our beloved children. I love the thought of that. But this text reminds us that we ought to be sober-minded about this. We will only pass on our wealth if God draws out his sword and fights for the survival of his people. The direction of David's prayer, so he, he started someplace and now he heads here, the direction of his prayer teaches us that God must fight for us if we are to survive and have the joy of passing on an inheritance. God must engage with our enemies with his sword. Arise, O Yahweh, confront our enemy. Bring him low. Protect our souls from the wicked one with your sword. Our flesh is weak and the devil is strong. And God knows this. We could blow everything, our children's inheritance included, if he does not protect us from the wicked one. But would he leave us to an enemy that is too strong? Would he leave us to fight our flesh and the devil in our own power? If he intends to glorify himself by redeeming a people for himself, would he not overcome that one that would want to consume us like a lion? Our confidence, as it was David's, is not in our ability to fight, but in the power of God who clearly revealed his intention to fight for us. He will protect our soul from the wicked one with his sword. And it is only through this knowledge, through this confidence, that we can say, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Amen. Okay, let's sing now. Could you come up, please, Mel?
tune of Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past. Can you just play us the play us through once more? Okay. 